0: Deval, I'm going to just take you back. You know, I just, I realized that it's 21 years since you moved back to India. So, I mean, how do you look at this journey besides the beard, which makes you look very reflective?
1: Hi, everyone. This is Samyukta. I'm one of the producers of No Cost Extension. This week, we're releasing a special episode, which is a conversation between Deval and Hansal Mehta, that took place earlier this year at Dasra Philanthropy Week. Hansal is a well-known national award-winning filmmaker, director, and writer. You may know his work, Shahid, City Lights, and more recently, Scam 1992. Hansal is a longtime friend of the development sector. His wife, Safina Hussain, is a social worker and the founder of the nonprofit, Educate Girls, in Mumbai. In this interview, Hansel speaks to Deval about his perspectives on philanthropy, what he believes counts as real impact, and Deval's lockdown beard. The interview and the Q&A that followed have been edited. For the full version, please visit Dasra's YouTube channel.
0: Good morning, Deval. Good morning, Hansal Bhai. So, uh, I mean, uh, this was, uh, you know, a very unusual request. Uh, I would have expected you to have Safina interview you. But I am delighted to be uh, on this forum talking to you. Uh, because, you know, I must tell you that 2008 is when we got to know about Dasra. When we got to know uh, Neera and you. Your presence in our life as individuals and as Dasra, has been transformative. An organization that was doing a pilot with only 50 schools uh, has scaled to a level that we never imagined. It, uh, it was an organization on the verge of uh, you know possible shutdown. And uh, from a place of despair, you have scaled us to a place of transformation. While I'm very, very thankful to you for that. I think I'm more thankful that as individuals, as an organization, you guys have transformed our lives. You know, As a filmmaker, many of the things that, many of the experiences that I live on screen are part of our uh, conversations. And I'm hoping that, you know, this uh, conversation uh, takes that forward. What What is this no-cost extension? I was quite intrigued. So tell me. What, what is this?
2: Thank you, Hansel. And uh, I am interviewing your wife later for the podcast. <laughs> so don't worry. Safina is very much in the mix. And hers and other stories, again, like you said, are, are so inspirational. Uh, hopefully, this is a platform that we can get those stories out there more so than, than than we've had in the past. I think you know one of the reasons we've titled this uh, No Cost Extension is because it's a terminology that is actually quite understood in the nonprofit sector. And and what it means is typically when you get funding from a larger foundation, for example, they'll give you funding for, let's say, a three-year or five-year period. And and in that contract, they will say, if you don't spend those funds within this time period, they'll give you something called a no-cost extension, which means they'll give you sort of a few weeks or months or, or years even just to spend that additional amount. The reason I, I, we decided to, to sort of call this podcast Note Cost Extension is because typically uh, two things, I guess, number one, typically organizations, nonprofits, NGOs, uh, we've done things efficiently, which is why <laughs> uh, we haven't spent the full capital. And, and yet donors, and, and I think it's important to speak about this, not just in today's panel, but more importantly in our podcast, donors at times uh, clearly have the power. And so uh, while that terminology, no-cost extension, seems that they're doing NGOs a favor, it really means that NGOs need to continue to deliver on programs with only partial funding, yet donors consider it an extension they're giving us uh, as NGO leaders. And I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, not just the jargon, but this sort of power dynamic, which, which has been part of this sector for many, many years, Goal of this particular podcast, No Cost Extension, is to speak about those issues, speak openly about them, have candid conversations. At times, again, as NGOs, we are not able to speak about this because we're afraid the donor will not give us these funds. But I think, you know, with everything that's happened in the world uh, in the last year, year and a half, I think we've all realized now that we need to sort of challenge the norms that exist across the board, including in the development sector. And and the no cost extension is just one of these again, uh, ludicrous things that again exist only in the nonprofit sector that if you're efficient, you actually are are given permission to spend no money on a partial basis versus actually saying you should get that as a reward because you've demonstrated sort of impact and success.
0: Okay. Devil, I'm going to just take you back. You know, I just saw the trailer and uh, I realized that it's 21 years since you moved back to India. So, I mean, how do you look at this journey? Besides the beard, which makes you look very uh, reflective. So maybe this, uh, you know, reflect uh, on the journey with us. What has it meant for you? And I've always been intrigued. Why the choice to come back to India and to work uh, in a sector that is uh, that has uh, more challenges? Uh, every Every new achievement is followed by bigger challenges.
2: I guess some of this is clearly... My upbringing and being born and brought up in the U.S. in a middle-class family, we were taught at an early age uh, to look after those who needed support. And so many of these were Indians who came on a flight in to Houston, where I was born and brought up uh, in the sort of mid '70s, early '80s. And these individuals had no many times place to go. They would sort of land at the airport and our family, I guess, like many other families across uh, the city, if not the the country, would sort of house individuals and get their ready to stand on their two feet. And so on on one hand, I guess I was exposed to a huge level of support that we were providing individuals who came from India. Yet when I would come and visit my family here in Mumbai on every couple of years and see children who looked like me, who were begging at traffic lights, who had no one to support them, and I'd ask the same parents who were supporting people in America, Indians who came on flights, why aren't we helping? Uh, I'd be given answers of, this is not our problem. These children are in gangs. We can't do anything to fix it, ignore. And, and so I think growing up and seeing sort of children who, again, looked and felt like me who were in these positions really frustrated me. And I felt that while I was blessed to have my parents move in the late 60s to the U.S. and give me a better life, I also, I guess, felt an obligation of sorts to, to sort of see what I can do with that privilege of growing up there, getting educated, getting a job, et cetera, and come back to, to sort of, you know, help those who I felt people were not helping. And I guess through that process, I volunteered with children living on the streets next to Grant Road Station here in Mumbai with a phenomenal organization community outreach program. And, and I guess I just learned so much from them, these kids, than I thought I would teach them. And that was my first exposure, I guess, to this space and first realization that there's so much we can do as a country, as individuals, and as a society, I guess, to to, to sort of solve these inequalities. And and so that led me, I guess, to to sort of make the first move and come to India to see if there's anything I can do. Uh, Luckily, I met uh, Nira, my wife, as you know, quite well at Morgan Stanley. uh, And we started talking about this at sort of four in the morning when we were creating pitch books for our clients and kept saying, are there skills that we have learned that we can actually take back to India? And, and so I think that led us to, to sort of create this organization. I think the beard, and I think it's important to talk about it since it's definitely a conversation in my family. As you can imagine, that happens on a daily basis. I think for me, the reason I have this beard uh, and I haven't you know, cut or shaved or anything since since lockdown is realizing the migrants, you know, the informal workers, those who are the most deprived and vulnerable in our society, those who also pushed me to actually take this plunge and, and move to India and do something to follow my passion, those communities have continued to be overlooked. The introspection, at least at a personal level, was even at Dasra. do we look at the quick-fix solutions? Do we look at the scalable models? Are we supporting those who actually need support, who you know, we may not be able to put on a graph. we may be able not able to put it on a results framework like donors want, and the solutions are messy and difficult. but why aren't we, in essence working with the same communities that at least inspired me to come to India um, and and do this work? So there's definitely been a whole lot of guilt, a whole lot of introspection and a whole lot of, okay, how can we change our ways and how do we not forget again, the communities that build our cities, that feed our children that, honestly has allowed India to be what it is today and not necessarily take the easy way out uh, when it comes to giving and philanthropy.
0: What does philanthropy mean to you? How would you define philanthropy? Because it, I want to lead, take it to uh, my next question, which might be a bit uncomfortable, but uh, before that, the comfortable question.
2: I mean, for me, philanthropy is love for society. And, and I say that because it's, you know, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of field workers that we have across the country, working in government hospitals, working in government schools, working for NGOs. They are more philanthropic, I feel, (laughs) than many of us. Again, where both of us are sitting comfortably in our apartments right now (laughs) and have been for the last year, yet those that are, you know, on the ground have not been able to, you know, keep social distancing. They've not been able to sort of live life the way we have. And and so for me, I think philanthropy really starts in the bottom. And and I think our work at TASRAH you know, anywhere from my first experiences with the children who live on, you know, the streets uh, in, at Grant Road Station, it was learning more about, from them, about love for society and what it means. And, and I think that was a real wake-up call for me in 1996, that the less you have, the more community-minded perhaps one becomes. And unfortunately, inversely may be true. The more you have, the more singular focus uh, you have with, you know, your nuclear family, or those from just your community. And I think it's time to sort of change that. The original philanthropists clearly that I was inspired by were these kids. I mean, they fed stray animals every single day, even though they didn't have a roof over their heads. They looked after each other. They cared about you know, their community. And I realized very early on that even me growing up in a middle-class family, I didn't treat my, my own brother with that same level of love for society as, as I've seen communities treat each other.
0: I mean, it takes me to my next question. And this is something that I've always, you know, have seen Spina deal with uh, donors, philanthropists. It's a question that I ask everyone. I, do we as Indians, you know, I've seen her working with uh, international donors, international grant uh, agencies, and with Indian donors. I mean, is the culture of giving, does India really have a culture of giving? Are we philanthropic enough? Are philanthropists strategic enough? Or is philanthropy more pressure-driven? You know, is because it's uh, something that you need to do. Is it pressure-driven? Is it religious? I mean, I I find myself torn. I, I find myself often thinking that, you know, philanthropy is not done for the right reasons sometimes in our country. The shiny examples are few and far uh, in between. How do you uh, bring about
2: that change you know because we need to change in order to give. I think you hit upon a few good points I mean I think one is are we as a society in India giving enough and and I think uh, you know later this week we will have multiple discussions just to compare our giving uh, uh, when it comes to certain income strata in India versus giving in other countries and while that number has gone up over the years it's still nowhere close to for example what we see in the west and there are many reasons for this, again, including economic growth is still fairly new to India versus another countries, capital markets, tax incentives. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, I guess. But I think and for me, I guess the question has always been not are we as an individual giving enough in terms of how much I can give personally, for example, but more are we solving the problem or not? And, and I think one looks at this issue in that frame. I don't think any of us, including, you know, myself, Safina, others that we're interviewing who've you know devoted large portions of their life to be in this space. I don't think any of us actually feel that we've we've done enough. And I think, you know, there are different ways to participate. One can participate like many of us have been fortunate to do, to sort of devote our lives to this and and make this into our jobs and our careers. There's others that may be able to only write checks. And and, and I think though is it's it's really important for us to not look at a metric of i'm giving 1% or 0.1% or 0.03% it it needs to be about what is the problem in front of me that we need to solve and i think that's critical and and so for me i guess it's really starts with that uh, which is are we trying to really move people out of poverty and enable them to thrive or are we complacent when they survive and i say this because many of the metrics that globally is, are looked at in terms of poverty is really mortality rates. Is somebody living or dying? Literacy is defined by whether you could read or write your name, not whether or not you can read and write enough to gain an education, which leads to you know, some sort of employment, or that you can sign documents that you ensure are not cheating you, or that you can read even what's available to you with various government schemes and take action. And so I think the bar... Unfortunately, is so low in terms of survival versus thriving societies. And I think we need to change that. Once you sort of accept that as the goal, I think then whether it is for social capital, whether it's for legacy, whether it's even religious giving, I mean, there's tons of examples of religious institutions who give to all religions and, and not just to their community. And, and again, I'm not saying either or. It's an either or question, but it's a both question, because many times uh, the communities that, for example, the wealthy may come from, there could have been infrastructure opportunities, a level playing field, which enabled them to become wealthy, which may not exist in other communities. And so it's, I think, looking not just at your communities, but also looking at, you know, India as a whole, and saying okay well what are we doing to support india and i think that in my mind actually is the true meaning of nationalism <laughs> it is is about accepting every single person as your own brother sister parent child uh, when it comes to philanthropy at least we, we we try to sort of give everyone the same opportunities that we've been given and if that's your motivation hopefully the rest will sort of fall into place you know uh, so it brings me to
0: my next question, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, over the years, you've seen the regulatory pressures, compliance, uh, you know, the restrictions that are placed on the social sector, you know, year after year, you're seeing that, you know, there's almost like a clampdown on the uh, social sector. And do you think, you know, and this is again from a philanthropy lens, I won't, I'm not going to get into a political debate on this. Do you think uh, philanthropists, uh, you know, who have a voice need to you know, help the sector. We looked at with a more uh, compassionate, uh, open mind, because uh, are they are they doing enough uh, to you know? Because uh, isn't it a hindrance? I mean, you know, this all the regulatory pressures. I see uh, non-profits uh, struggling with more regulatory pressures uh, than you know actually creating social impact. You know, bridging that gap. You know, I think somewhere. Uh, those who have the power to, you know, influence, the need to step up or step in. I mean, what what is your uh, point of view on this?
2: No, I mean, I think there's no question. It is far more difficult from a regulatory perspective to do good uh, as a nonprofit in this country than it is to start a for-profit entity which does no good. <laughs> and I think uh, while In the past many years as a country, we've looked at the ease of doing business as an indicator that we all sort of as a country aspire to, you know, enhance and and move up the ranks. I think a similar emphasis needs to be put on the the ease of of running an NGO. We have laws that continue to get more and more strict, uh, making it, as you said, Hansel, very, very difficult to run an organization. It takes a day to bring in, uh, or a week maybe, to bring in foreign funds as a for-profit entity, and you go through FEMA and RBI to bring in foreign funds to do nonprofit work. It takes uh, years, if not decades. I think there's been significant restrictions, as you said, that have been continuously placed on the sector for the last decade. And so, as you said, I don't think it's political in nature. <laughs> I, I think we've seen, you know, two governments on the central level in the last 10 years, and. And equally, there's been sort of pressure put. And unfortunately, when you start digging into, you know, the the cases that are referred to as why these more restrictive laws are being uh, placed, they're literally one in a million. Yet It's that one in a million that uh, affects us all. And, And so I do think domestic philanthropists have a huge role to play in speaking about this because global philanthropists cannot. But to your point, I think globally, at least, uh, philanthropists do support this, including in the countries that they reside in, uh, even if it's seen as holding the government accountable. But in India, we don't see as much of that, and and I think that's where really the everyday giver, you know, those who can give smaller amounts of capital, who are less under risk of coming under that scanner. I think they can actually, you know, make a difference in supporting some of these causes and issues uh, 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 which which are critical to our country.
0: You know, I'm going to just take this conversation forward for a brief moment to fill this gap, this trust deficit that uh, you see, you know, it almost seems like a trust deficit that nonprofits are seen as people who, they are seen as either activists or disruptive. Uh, So the variety of uh, things that, you know, on social media and, you know, in conversations I keep hearing, what can we do more to dispel uh, this, you know, and, uh, being from the sector, you know, you know, being close to the sector, I know that it is not entirely true. How do we dispel these myths, you know? Uh, this silence uh, is, you know, increase. it is widening the trust uh, deficit, it is creating a bigger gap. How do we mobilize uh, voices to get this uh, across that, you know, not everybody, not all the apples are rotten.
2: You know, 12 years ago, that was our goal when we created the philanthropy form, uh, was to start mm. having these conversations. Uh, unfortunately, from a power perspective, and I say this uh, with full criticism on Dasra and, and decisions that I've made, uh, we did this at a five-star hotel. And, and so invariably, we were limiting those who can participate in these conversations to just a few. Thank God for this pandemic uh, in terms of helping us open source these conversations, in helping us realize that there is a need, to your point, to really expand these dialogues and conversations. And I think for me, in a very small way, the podcast was, was one of those, I guess, venues or mediums to do that. I think there has been, on the plus side, I guess, many more conversations on philanthropy that exist. Today, for example, than did exist 12 years ago when we ran and, and started the philanthropy forums. But again, those 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 conversations are honestly only accessible to a few. And many times the panel conversations are led more by statistics versus the stories. And, and, and I say that because I think it's the stories that actually help bring a level of humility, help ideally bring greater access to anyone who listens to those stories. And, and clearly you as a filmmaker know this better than anyone else. And, and, and so we're hoping through the podcast, at least, that these stories can, can help people realize that, you know, whether it's Saperna from Ungin or Donald Lobo, who's a giver in the U.S. or Vinith Rai, who started Avishkad, that, you know, all of these individuals, while they have created significant impact in this space over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, all of them started, again, small. None of them, in fact, had relationships, connections, uh, even PhDs in this area. And, and so I think hopefully through these conversations, people will realize how accessible the sector really is and hopefully start convincing others to participate. And again, however shape they, or form they can participate, but, but participate wholeheartedly. And, and clearly more of these conversations need to happen for it to be you know, mainstream like other sectors are today
0: okay i'm going to uh, take a slight detour because this can go on and it might i don't know where it will lead uh, but uh, what has been your you know the most uh, the people that you influenced you most in these 21 years which are the people that you would say have inspired you i know safina has but No, she's she's watching (laughs) so no no i'm i'm joking so who are the people who've inspired you the most in the past 21 years There have
2: been honestly and and i say this humbly every day i get inspired and it's in that sense been amazing to create i guess a career path which allows one to speak to inspirational individuals every single day Again, given COVID, you know, have not been able to go to the field, clearly for a while, but before just, you know, meeting the field staff of NGOs, many of them from the same community uh, that they're trying to support, these community leaders are so inspiring. Uh, They didn't wait for, you know, they reached a certain age of their life to start giving back. They didn't wait till they reached a certain bank account balance (laughs) to start giving back. They took sort of the issues they saw in front of them as their own and and really played a much larger role to to sort of, you know, make those changes. And and so I I think, you know, the staff of all organizations, I think, inspire me, Uh, the communities they support uh, inspire me even more because they are single handedly lifting themselves out of poverty and all NGOs can do or provide somewhat of a level playing field, but really... The onus is, is, is in those that uh, are uplifting themselves and their families. The NGO leaders, uh, I remember again in 98, 99, uh, sitting uh, in New York at the time and reading over Ashoka Fellow profiles. And so Ashoka is this phenomenal organization that supports NGO leaders with their quest of, of creating social change. And, and I remember back then sort of reading uh, profiles of Priti Patkar, who started in 1986, the first night shelter for children of sex workers here in Mumbai. Javed Abidi, who sort of took a real stance on ensuring that those with special needs and and the disabled have rights in our country, <laughs> similar to the rights that we have, as well as givers. And, and I say this because in the last year, at least, we've been working with Anuaga, Meher, Rati, Forbes, um, Farhad, and others to really look at how do companies create a stronger, more dignified and equitable social compact with not just their employees, but their contractors and their subcontractors. You know, there's, again, decisions that need to be made across the board. And I think we all need to realize that we've also enabled this unjust society to continue. And and I think just hearing them, you know, make this core to not just their mission, but bring in their peers of company leaders, organizations across the country that can start thinking about redefining what it means to be an equitable and fair employer and give livable wages. I think these are some of the conversations that we're having right now. And and while we're we're close to sort of claiming we've accomplished something, I think even coming to the table... Uh, having the humility to accept where we as a society have gone wrong and then being willing to listen to multiple stakeholders to sort of change the ways, I think, is, are, are, are some of the, again, inspirational journeys that, that I've seen and, and continue to see on a regular basis.
0: Who would you say influenced you the most in these years? I mean, uh, any individual that you can say really influenced your, your life as we see? it now when you look back
2: I mean one of the questions that continue to emerge as one works in this space is are we really creating impact or not and that is a question that again is is difficult to define you know for those of us who are parents for example we may have uh, like I have you know three children and we provide them similar opportunities yet honestly, what they do with those opportunities differs from child to child. And so there's so much, only so much, I guess, even nonprofits, for that matter, can do. And, and, and I think impact, again, when, when we're talking about poverty, which is multifaceted, health, education, livelihoods, it's, it's very, very difficult to define impact. What inspires me or keeps me going are, are those individuals who who have lifted themselves out of poverty, who have challenged the norm. And and so whether it's Educate Girls or Magic Bus or even a small organization like the Sharanam Center, and I see, you know, what those adolescents or when they were adolescents, what they were able to instill in themselves and what they are doing now in terms of really being community leaders and providing support to those in and around where they live, even in COVID times. And so many of them, again, many NGOs, have suffered tremendous losses, uh, and we've had to lay off as a sector employees, we've had to decrease salaries, et cetera. But you see these leaders that were developed and empowered by these NGOs, they continue to do the work. And, and with each organization, there's a few, I guess, individuals that I've been fortunate enough to, to remain friends with, to speak to, to see their growth and, and their opportunity. And, and I think in a very small way that defines for me how development actually can work and make a difference. At the same time I I think of, you know, them as well to continue to work harder because knowing that again the need is so great that that the, you know there's again no no way we can sort of take a victory lap or say we're done. It it, it is more that okay if, if a solution is working with 1000 people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, even a million people for that matter, How does it work for the 250 million adolescents, for example, that we have in our country? And and I think what what inspires me is is not just those adolescents, but all of the NGO leaders, as well as funders, uh, you know, who who support these initiatives long term.
0: So, uh, you see, one of the things, I mean, before we move into the Q&A, the question I uh, really have is, you know, over the years, we have seen, even in DASRA, I've seen a very vibrant, young, uh, you know, set of people working for Dasra, there's there's this great energy and around us, you see more and more younger people, you know, compared to people, say, from my generation, a lot of younger people gravitating towards, you know, social change, whether as social entrepreneurs, whether joining the non-profit sector, the social sector.
2: I do see younger people definitely making purpose part of their career choices. And and I think that is fantastic. I think in in any sector, you need middle-class participation uh, because the middle class can participate. There's been a huge shift, I would say, in terms of individuals at a younger age finding purpose to be greater of a commitment than just acquisition of wealth. And I think that is fantastic, and I think the sector has involved, uh, evolved completely in the last 21 years where can again support a family and and be in the social sector. I, I think we're also seeing it at a senior level as well, and so we are seeing you know people who have 10, 15 years of experience in the corporate sector who are also you know making shifts and saying, "Look, I want to serve and, and so I think this is a great step forward. Uh, Again, the needs are far more than what, you know, what even the the current human capital that exists in this space, and so we need to increase it. And again, examples of a a few of the conversations I've had already with, for example, Suburna from Ungen Trust, you know, the fact that they have been able to get staff to work in different geographies across the country to to support the needs of adolescents is fantastic. Or Vinit Rai, who works in impact investing and started Avishkar, which is one of the largest impact investing funds that exists actually globally. And he started that here in India. Again, just looking at their teams, the amount of people that are looking to work for him is, is, is fantastic. And, and in fact, I asked him this on the, on the podcast and I think his response was fa- also fantastic, uh, given Vineet was you know telling kids not to actually join him. But to work with a social entrepreneur, to work with an NGO, to be on the ground, to be in the field, because it's, it's unless you have that real life knowledge of really how change takes place and how difficult it is, uh, only then you should work with groups like Thessera, IntelliCap, Abishkat, et etc. And I was fortunate, uh, as was Neera, to, to volunteer with NGOs for a while and then sort of say, OK, we kind of know how we could add value. And, and if possible, I think, you know, many more should, should do that. Because many times, again, as givers of time or resources, we feel like we should be put on a pedestal (laughs) because we're giving, not realizing that, you know, there's serious consequences if we don't give effectively, if we're not able to do our jobs, if we're not actually adding value to the communities we serve. And and, and so I think hopefully through this podcast also we'll have real conversations on uh, is, is philanthropy, and I think you alluded to this in one of your earlier questions, is it for myself I'm doing this to make me feel good or is it to actually... Enable communities to thrive, and and I think it's important to always ask ourselves this question.
0: So uh, I think uh, we should, you know, take. Uh, there are lots of questions coming in from the audience, and I'm going to dive in and uh, pick up some of those questions. What are the major shifts you see happening in the nonprofit sector post the pandemic?
2: Three, I guess, two or three levels. I guess one at a funder level, there is a greater realization on the need to support issues, like I said, beyond CSR, but that affect our country as a whole. And it's unfortunate that we needed this pandemic to help us understand the true value of our informal workforce. Uh, But I think there's a true recognition that companies, and again, this is not about the 2%, this is about the 100% of their operations and and how they can be more responsible. And, And I think that is, an amazing step forward especially when their profits have also declined in this in this time period and at least the way we we sort of discuss this at tasra is it's it's sort of like the movements against child labor where it, it it is just the right thing to do the goal of course is that we don't forget about uh, you know those images uh, of people walking back and and how maltreated we uh, have been as a society. And and so I think that's one shift. I think with the NGOs, we're we're seeing, uh, again, depending on the sector, but a clear sort of move to digital where one can be digital. Again, it's not a perfect solution and it's not the only solution. And clearly we all want our children to be back at school. That being said, in education, if digital can supplement what is happening in the school, I think that's a great, great sort of area that hopefully people will fund and support as well as on the healthcare side. Hopefully this has demonstrated, you know, the the need for telemedicine as well as decentralized uh, solutions. And I think, you know, globally, we've seen those countries that have been most effective uh, in combating this pandemic have been the ones who've sort of decentralized decision making and realized how things need to actually happen at a local level. And so we're hoping at least these kind of views or perspectives continue you know, even after uh, a year or two, all of us have, you know, the vaccine, et cetera.
0: Most Indian philanthropies invest more in welfare approaches and few invest in rights-based uh, approaches in a severely marginalizing time like this. How do you see Indian philanthropies motivated to undertake justice, equity, and inclusion agendas?
2: I mean, we, we need to clearly invest more in this space. We've seen a few at least that have been working on the issue of migrants and informal workers for decades. And because of this uh, COVID and and what has happened, there's a greater realization, I guess, that these organizations need long-term support. And and I think as a society, we need to also realize that in a democracy, rights is not a bad word. (laughs) In fact, that's what enables us to remain a democracy. And, And so helping somebody to, for example, access the right to education that's given to their children, or the right to healthcare, or the right to land. Uh, these are all things, again, that are testaments to a strong and vibrant democracy. And, and so I think, I, I think we need to start having some of those conversations and realize, again, and this is sort of, you know, the ego versus empowerment is, is critical. And, and I think what, what hopefully has happened because of this pandemic and clearly uh, it's affected me is, 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 is around empower communities, uh, enable them to then make those decisions, whatever those decisions may be. And I think many organizations have done a really good job in empowerment, uh, but funding is dried up. And again, for whatever reason, uh, there is a negative connotation when we talk about rights versus a positive connotation. And and I say this again, because if we're a democracy, (laughs) then the rights should be what we're proudest about and and ensuring that everyone has these rights. And so I I, I think this is definitely an area where more funding has to come in. Uh, What uh, have
0: been some major failures or shortcomings in the development sector that you plan to bring to light over the podcast series?
2: I mean, one of them is, an, is, is really related to this question about empowerment. And, and I say this because even egos don't only sit with philanthropist heads, Uh, They can also sit with NGO leaders as well. <laughs> and, and so I think just understanding what we can do for communities so they're the ones who are making the decision, not us, I, I think is really, really important. And again, we do this in our lives if we have children, you know, after a certain age, we enable them to make decisions and we should. I think the same doesn't necessarily hold true in the development sector. And, and so I, I hope at least all of us start sort of looking at the programs that we support or that we run even and, and really questioning, again, is it our ego of this model being replicated across the country as being, you know, what we want to celebrate and talk about scale and 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 be on platforms either in India or globally, or is it that, uh, slightly longer approach of we've we've empowered communities, and so when we leave, it's actually up to them to make those decisions, and they may or may not be what we have offered them, or can provide them. But really, that that decision lies with them, not with us. Okay. Well, this
0: uh, this is an interesting question, and this is something that you hear in many many debates, even political debates, religious debates. So, in in one sentence, what is bad philanthropy? And what is good philanthropy?
2: I think bad philanthropy is when you think you know the solution and you don't take time to meet, understand, and be guided by the communities you serve. And good, good, good philanthropy? And good philanthropy is realizing that we are lucky to participate, that those who are doing the hard work are those on the ground. And again, we need to give empowerment, flexibility, and ownership of decision to those communities. Okay,
0: so I think we have time for one more question. Frontline grassroots NGOs are the critical players can do this work. What are the top things that we as foreign funders can do to support uh, frontline grassroots NGOs and help them build the capacity that is sorely needed? I mean, this goes
2: back to to sort of how we started Tasra and volunteering with different NGOs across the country. I think Nir and I saw that while these communities had great solutions and were very dedicated and and were willing to uplift themselves and and their their peers uh, from poverty, I think what we realized is many times that these same communities didn't have the ability to gain different perspectives or build that capability. And, And so I think capacity building is such a critical aspect of supporting these communities. And again, it's it's giving them the tools, uh, not giving them the decision.
0: Yeah, this has been very, very enriching, uh, Deval. Uh, you know, whenever you write your biography, uh, you know, <laughs> you the first one yeah. to ask for the fulfilling for the, for rights.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh-huh. you, Anselin. I really appreciate your time and effort. I hope everyone can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get the podcast. And while Anselin, and this is the only time I can tell you this, but... Um, While all of my family, because we're Gujaratis, therefore many of them have been in the stock broker, and there's a poll up, sorry. While all my family loves your movie, Scam 92 or 3, sorry,
0: 92,
2: I think you were actually better in the Swiggy ad that you started. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and how can I be in a swiggy ad since Swiggy has kept me going and my family going for the last 12 months? Great. Thank you so much, Hansal. I really Thank appreciate you. your friendship and your time.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Deval.
2: Thank you. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening. You can follow Hansal Mehta on Twitter at Mehta Hansel and Deval Sangvi at Deval underscore sangri. To find out more about No Cost Extension, visit dasra.org forward slash NCE. No Cost Extension is produced by Varka Media.